Welcome to Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us today. A few weeks ago, uh, Angus Reed took a poll about how Canadians have been feeling over the last eight weeks during our ongoing experience during this pandemic. And this is how we as Canadians described our feelings during this moment in descending order. The first was worried, then anxious, then grateful, bored, optimistic, depressed, normal, untroubled, numb, pessimistic. Now you might be watching the sermon years later, not during this moment. You're like, well, not much has changed. Yeah, probably. But this is what we are feeling at this moment. And, and then uh, we've heard in the last two weeks all over the internet that there are killer hornets coming. So it truly is the end of time. So I thought, while we're feeling worried and anxious and grateful and bored and optimistic and depressed and normal and untroubled and numb and pessimistic and there are killer hornets and we have no clue about our future, I thought, you know what? Let's talk about sex because there's nothing else going on that's controversial or wild these days. So welcome to week six in our ongoing spring series on the spiritual practices. Today, we're gonna to talk about something called chastity. Now, as we've said week after week, if spiritual gifts are the God-given place to serve others from, in other words, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to serve from because they have God at their center and Jesus himself used them, then spiritual practices are the guaranteed place of meeting God. They're the vehicles to help us to continue to walk with God. They clear the ground to be with God after, of course, you've met him exclusively through the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Now, for today's conversation, we need to come back to the key verse, the foundational verse for this whole series. But, that, but this verse specifically is going to be so important as we talk through this one today. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, this is what Jesus said. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, my yoke, as we found out and we've learned before, is the key phrase. Jesus did not say, come to me, I'm going to remove all yokes, you get to do what you want. Of course, a yoke is what was placed on the back or the neck of an animal to be led, for example, to plow a field. So the way to be transformed, the way to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, the way to be like Jesus is to be yoked to Jesus. In other words, to be led, here's even a more scary word, controlled by Jesus. Oh, and wait, what makes up the yoke? Well, part of what makes up the yoke is the practices that we all can do together. But more importantly, the yoke is important, but the more important idea is who's doing the leading. The critical idea here is that Jesus is Lord. He owns all and he's in charge. Now, if you're a Christian, and I know some of you are not, but for we who are genuine followers of Jesus— Jesus is not allowed to be confined to influencing us on the sidelines, but he has to lead us where he wants us to go, especially when it comes to power, relationships, money, and sexuality. Christians are willing slaves to Jesus because we know he's a better master than we would be in our own lives or, or someone else. And this willing slavery always works itself out in sex, money, and power. See, to find out what 
the practices are and also to find out what God promises us and what he's inviting us into and commanding us to be and to become and what to give up and what to embrace when we, li- when we willingly live under his gentle and kind lordship. That all starts when we live under what he's given us. Not just the practices, but his word. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, the Bible, is God-breathed and it's useful to teach us, rebuke us, don't do that, correct us, don't go here, go there, and train us in righteousness, live this way. So here's the question as we get going today. What has more authority? What has more say? What has more sway? What influences you more? Culture or scripture? Your experience and feelings or scripture? Is your pain stronger than scripture? Is your story and narrative stronger than scripture? Politics, your views, your family, your friends, or scripture? Now, so far, as we've gone through this series, we've looked at Jesus as our model, and we've looked at six spiritual practices. Prayer, confession, solitude, silence, fasting, and biblical secrecy. Now, now today, we're going to look at another critical spiritual practice for everyday people. Today, we're going to talk about chastity, which, of course, is a form of fasting. Now, some of you are sitting at home or wherever you're listening to me and you're going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, was there a problem online? Did, did the internet just crash? He, he didn't just say the word chastity. I mean, is that even a thing anymore? And John, are you going to start handing out chastity belts to all the youth and young adults and un, unmarrieds among us? Are we going back to 11 AD? Are we in the dark ages? It's amazing what our culture thinks when we say that word. Just think about two movies that have come out in the last decade or so. Steve Carell's comedy, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. I mean, the whole premise behind it is to be a virgin at 40 is just a joke. It's so stupid. Are you joking me? Or 40 Days and 40 Nights. And do you know what the tagline was, right? One man is about to do the unthinkable, no sex whatsoever for 40 days and 40 nights. We live in a sex-soaked culture. We actually live in the most sexualized culture in history. The practices are diverse and haven't changed, but through the internet, you can have any sexual experience or want in any direction, in any way. Years ago, I heard over 50% of the internet is pornography. I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't be shocked. But see, here's what our culture is teaching us. Without sexual acts, you're not really human. You're not fully human. Listen, Most of us have never heard the word chastity anymore. Most of us who even grew up in church have never thought about this as a spiritual discipline to be practiced by all Christians, but as we're going to find out, it is. Chastity is one spiritual practice that we're all invited to to be more like Jesus himself. Yes, those who are single, those who are single again, and we, some of us who are married, All at points will be called to engage in this practice. Now, listen to what one person said. In fact, what we call sex, sex, sexual needs, are not really needs, but they're wants. The body needs food and air and water. Without this, human life can no longer survive. But no one has ever died from the lack of sexual intercourse. Many actually have lived quite full and satisfying lives without genitalia sex, including Jesus himself. So sexual intercourse is a human want. It's not a human need. Oh, and the difference 
is significant. And to understand this difference can be tremendously liberating for many, including Christian singles. They are not half people, unfulfilled, incomplete. They do not need sexual intercourse to experience wholeness even in their sexuality. So as we've done week after week, let's start with a common definition so we're all on the same page. Here's a great one I found. Chastity is purposely turning away for, from a t- for a time f- from dwelling upon or engaging in the sexual dimension of our relationship to others, even a husband or wife, and thus learning how not to be governed by this powerful aspect of our life. Now, before we get to the why and the when, we need to start all the way back at the beginning and answer some greater questions. What is sexuality according to the biblical worldview? Is sex even okay? Is it bad? What does God even think about sex? What does he expect? What's yes, what's no? Is it a result of the fall? So let's go back to the very beginning. The very first verse in the Bible, before God even creates us as human beings. And in this conversation, the very first verse in the Bible is probably the most important. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is creator. We are his creation. He is uncreated. We are created. In other words, God has the final say. Creator implies design, authority, direction, artistic purpose. Now on the sixth day, God creates humans in his image. The only creatures in all of creation that can know God, walk with God, the only ones that have the ability even to be in relationship with him personally. But notice, unlike God, people have a sexual differentiation. God created two types of us, male and female. In other words, God creates gender. Gender is not socially constructed. It is God-given. It is the creator's expression, will, and design. Genesis 1.27, so God created humanity in his own image. In his own image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One wrote this. Notice too that the Bible stresses relationship, and that helps us understand human sexuality. The problem with topless bars, he writes, and pornographic literature of our day is not that they emphasize sexuality too much, but they don't actually emphasize it enough. They totally eliminate relationship and restrain sexuality to the narrow confines of just having sex. They make sex trivial. So male and female, complementary roles is God's design, God's plan, and is the full true expression of sexuality but there's more. Here we begin to see that marriage and being single are both reflections of the very nature of God, the creator, the one that we love, that we worship, that we've given our lives to, again, if you're a Christian. Now, how does marriage reflect God? Well, amazingly, our God is one God, yet he is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can't be love without someone in the room. God has eternally been in community. So when a husband and wife have mutual sex, it says in the Bible, they become one flesh. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, they share one psyche, yet they still remain two separate individuals. They share a fundamental sameness, yet are two different individuals. That is why marriage in the Bible is held so highly and that is why sex is amazing and beautiful, but you cannot change it. By changing the nature and place of sex, we stop reflecting the essence of God. And for Christians that personally know God and walk with God, it's just not allowed. Yet on the other hand, we know that we don't worship three gods. There is only one God. We're monotheists. He is single. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
Why are you saying all this, John? Well, marriage and singleness are both expressions of God's nature. And as we read the scripture, they're both expressions of his will. They are two equal divine options rooted in the very creator's makeup. Neither should be elevated or pitted against each other. Now, in church history, this has happened. During the medieval period, the true door to spirituality and showing that you loved Jesus the most as you became a monk or nun and you remained single. Today, much of the church globally is now more about a nuclear family or the family orientation. And, and here's the problem. Both of these are actually expressions of God's will. So let's do this again. Male and female is God's ideal. Singleness and marriage all reflect God and being in his image. So the second question to be asked is, okay, well, is sex okay? Is it good or is it a result of the fall? Because lots of people just before the medieval time in the church said, oh, sex, it's good, but it's actually bad and it's a result of the fall. Well, no, let's let the scripture speak. Sex is good. It is okay. It's not a result of sin. Actually, this is God's idea his gift and his plan. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. What's new? Okay. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place where, uh, place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman out of the rib he'd taken in the man and brought her to the man. Now, you might not know this, but this is where the tradition, at least in the Western church, of marriage comes from, where the father walks his daughter down an aisle to the husband. This is coming right out of the Genesis text where God presents Eve to Adam. And then, of course, Adam in this famed response, verse 23, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. And then this is why a man leaves his mom and dad and he's united to his wife and the two become one flesh. That's talking about sex. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt sh no shame. So what's implied here, implied very strongly here, is sex was happening between Adam and Eve before the fall. It was good. It was loving. It was to bond with each other. And of course, gave them the power to procreate, which reflects that DNA of God where he is creator and now we get to create. Now, Adam and Eve shared one essence and they felt no shame. Let that sit. They were with each other naked, no shame, no guilt, no self-hate, no feeling of inadequacy. There was nothing between them. They're physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually connected. They talked to God, not about God. They talked to each other, not about each other. And there was peace. Sex has never been misused. It's never produced regret, guilt, or shame. Yet, of course, as we know, when sin enters the world, it's affected like everything else. Now, from this point onward, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there's a unified sexual worldview. And actually, it's a very high view of sexuality and sex. And God affirms it, but he also confronts it when it goes sideways. If you want to know how explicit the Bible is, just read the Song of Songs. It is one of the most poetic uh, celebratory uh, statements of human sexuality. It's incredibly graphic, actually. And if you read Moses and Jesus and Paul and the author of Hebrews and many others, they all had a high view of sex, but they all said that the Genesis account before sin entered the world is God's will and God's standard. And when you deviate beyond that, in the Old Testament... And in the New Testament, it's unified. It's called sin. And so now, when thinking on the spiritual practice of chastity, we must address the tension of a high view of sex, that it's good, 
And then we're living in a fallen, broken world where sex is either misunderstood or misused and, and has broken many of us. So the question is, when are we called into this discipline? When does this holy habit really need to come to the forefront of our lives? Well, as you read through scripture, there are probably five times where this needs to be brought into our lives. Some of it's for a moment, some of it's for a season, some of it's for a lifetime. So first of all, all Christians are called to practice chastity when we're faced with sinning sexually. And again, the Bible, God's word inspired, remembered by Jesus' spirit. Jesus claims to be God. Jesus claims to be the God that walked with Adam and Eve and, and set all that up. Jesus claims to be the God that inspired Moses. Jesus claims to be the same God that sends his spirit to inspire Paul to write his letters. So we have to let scripture have the say on what, what's allowed and not, not allowed. So first of all, we are all called into the practice of chastity to say no to sin. Now, uh, during the time of Jesus and during the time of Paul, uh, let me just read a historian's summary of the Roman, the Greco-Roman view of sex. He said, sexual attitudes in an ancient Greco-Roman world were similar today to today, although probably even more blatant. Often a double standard existed, so wives were expected to have sexual relations, but only with their husbands. Chastity by women was valued, but not necessarily practiced. But men, however, had various sexual outlets as long as they did not commit adultery against another man's marriage. Here's a famous statement of uh, reflecting the laxity of the day. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives, ah, wives, they will legitimately bear the faithful generations of our household. In other words, the guy get to do what he want, but not the wife. Cicero wrote approvingly of the legitimacy of young men having affairs with courtesans. And during the Greco-Roman run and time, prostitution was normal. So was bisexuality, homosexuality. There was even homosexual marriage. And this was all common. Now into that world, which by the way is no different than our sexual experience here in Toronto, one of the greatest and one of the most diverse cities in the world. Here's what Paul writes under the spirit of Jesus's inspiration to Christians living in that environment, Ephesians 5.3. But among you, there, must, <clears throat> there may not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for the whole world, for God's holy people. Now, I've said this many times before and I'm gonna repeat it again. And the reason why I need to do it is because we need to have a common script. Sexual immorality, every time you see the phrase sexual immorality in the Bible, it's a word, porneia, in the New Testament. That's the Greek version of it. That's where we get our word pornography from. In Jesus's day and in Paul's day, that word was a clarifying word. It was an understood word. It wasn't vague. It was a catch-all word for all the sexual acts that the Bible had said no to. As a word, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means adultery, fornication, same-sex activity, uh, bestiality, incest, etc. Now, it's not saying all those acts are the same. It's just saying those acts, when you heard that word, were included. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, we actually don't, we don't do those acts anymore. He also says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from porneia, sexual morality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do, ne do you not know, if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you, you've received from God. You're not your own. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 
In other words, if we are Christians, and if you are one, then we actually are married to Jesus. That is, we're in covenant with Jesus and how we think and act with our bodies matters to him. Now, this is critical. All of us have sexual struggles. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm not even talking about temptation or which way you're sexually inclined. Struggle and orientation and temptation are genuine, real issues, but they're not the ultimate issue for a follower of Jesus, though significant. It's when we as Christians justify, it's when we affirm or act out sexually against what the Bible explicitly teaches and then say, well, God's just fine with it when the Bible says he's not. And again, you'll know you've crossed the line into compromise when you say things like God would never deny my natural desires or I don't need to explain myself to you or I know better than the Bible or God made me this way or as long as we're consenting or as long as no one gets hurt. See, that's split level. That's called syncretism. That's saying what we believe, what we feel, our pain, our history has more authority than what Jesus taught, Moses taught, or, or Paul taught, which are all in unity. The world, by the way, can live any way at once, of course. But as followers of Jesus, and this is so important, we are willing worshipers. Chastity, in other words, is our joyful calling. Chastity is how we actually suffer for Jesus and join him in his sufferings. It's how we say yes to Jesus and no to our wants that he's asked us not to practice. We're called into the holy habit of chastity in mind and body when we want to go to a place that's trespassing, where we're not allowed to go. Second of all, the Bible is pretty explicit. Others are called to celibacy, this discipline, to follow Jesus and live under his lordship and to give up sexual wants, rights, and desires. Now, Jesus himself teaches this. Uh, Matthew 19, 4. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. Let me just say this again. Jesus claims to be the God that did this. Jesus claims to be the God that inspired Moses, that outlined what's allowed and not allowed. And Jesus affirms this once again here as the original design and will of God. But then he continues on, and it's this next little passage that is rarely preached or read. Matthew 19, 12. There are eunuchs who are born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. That's usually political. And there are others who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. In other words, some choose to worship God this way. One wrote it like this. The ethic of Jesus is not about the actualization of perceived rights, but the willingness of the disciples to follow the example in Jesus and freely laying aside rights for the sake of the higher good. Jesus himself noted that certain people would be willing to set aside sex acts for the sake of the kingdom of God. One of the best books I've read lately on this, on loving Jesus and choosing singleness, is by a guy named David Bennett. He was raised in an agnostic home in Sydney, Australia, very similar probably to a Toronto culture. He believed he was disqualified from the love of God because of his sexuality. He saw Christianity as an enemy of the freedom uh, for LGBTQI people. And he experienced, as most have in that community, terrible prejudice and genuine homophobia. And so it stirred in him a desire to become an anti-Christian gay activist. Oh, and then Jesus came into his life. 
in a highly unexpected way, leading him down a path he never expected. And he recounts this whole story in his amazing book called War of Loves. Now his orientation has not changed and will not change and that's not even the point. In a recent interview, I loved this summary of his journey. He says, I remember saying to God, I'm a gay atheist act- activist. I can't be a Christian. So it was war. Who would I stand for, Jesus or that? The war in me, by the way, was huge. Did I trust God or didn't I? Well, it got to that, uh, that evidential threshold and I crossed it and I decided to follow Christ fully. And there was the war that began. For about three years, what do I do with my sexuality? What do I do with my romantic life? And then he just brilliantly says, but isn't this just a matter? This isn't just a matter for people who are gay. This is a matter for everyone with our will or the will of God. I mean, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, which is a war of loves, which he says is the center of my doctoral thesis, which he's writing, by the way, right now, I think at Oxford on this topic. He says, look, it's, it's a huge human struggle that we all have to do to do the will of God and not your own, including wrestling, the wrestling of a gay, same-sex attracted person as a Christian. So some of us choose to live as eunuchs for the kingdom of God because our love for Jesus is stronger, higher, and deeper. The third way we practice this, some people are spiritually gifted and or choose the discipline of singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. Some actually have a spiritual gift connected to this. Paul himself did. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 6. I wish that all men were like I am, but each man has his own charisma, gift from God. And one has this gift, the other has that. Paul was single and he loved it. He viewed it as a holy calling, but he goes further. In this case, he says he had the spiritual gift of celibacy and singleness. He uses the same language that he uses in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And without blushing and embarrassment, he says, I'm single and I think a lot more of you should be single and some of you have the spiritual gift and it's going to be great. But others of you might not be spiritually gifted like I am, but you still might choose singleness so you can accomplish more for the kingdom. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, an unmarried man is concerned about Jesus's affairs, God's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And then he repeats it about wives. In other words, here's what he's saying. Some of us should have the... A moment with Jesus where we'd say, would I be willing to be single for the sake of the gospel? Would I be able to give more time and money and energy and life to God knowing that that's what ripples into eternity? And I've preached this before. Don't be afraid to have this conversation with God. Don't be afraid to say it out loud. It's not going to seal the deal. God's a good God. He doesn't want you to be full of anxiety. But if you're in this position or in this position, again, just stop and ask. It's just so countercultural, but it's so kingdom oriented. There are some other times where we're called in this, maybe for a season. If you're single and you want to get married, but you're not married yet, you're called into this practice. If you are single again and you choose not to get remarried or you do get, you're called into this. It's actually what we read in 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee from evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Others of us who are married, there's a different aspect of this, a different part of the command to us, but it affects us too. First, 1 Corinthians 7.2. 
But since porneia, sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband, notice this. Remember what we learned about Greco-Roman worldviews. This is incredible. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. No one else, just there. (laughs) The wife does not have authority, whoa, over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. You want to talk about a countercultural, anti-Western verse? There it is. And here's what Paul says. If you're married and you're able to, you you should serve each other. We don't actually own our bodies anymore. When you get married, you actually choose to honor each other this way. This is not talking about abuse, by the way. This is not talking about sexual dysfunction. Of course, at different times of life or because of age or medical conditions, you can't always do this. But if you're able to do this, then you are called as a Christian to have an ongoing, good, healthy sex life. It's a way to love each other, serve each other. Oh, and it's a way to fight temptation. But then he says in verse five, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and only for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that word deprive is really strong. It's defrauding, steal. In other words, here's what Paul says. If you're a Christian and you're married, don't steal sex from your partner. That's a sin. Don't, Don't do that. Uh, The only time you get to do that together is if actually you want to fast or pray or choose another spiritual discipline for a period of time and then come back together. Now, all of this, what I've described today is a version of fasting. Though many of us do not have a spiritual gift connected to this, we are all, again, if you are a Christian, We're all called into the discipline of chastity and fasting, either by situation of life or by an agreed upon moment. So we seek God. Others of us have a spiritual gift. We can celebrate this and find joy in this. Others of us might be willing to do this. Others of us, because of life or situation, are are into this, whether we want to or not, because actually it's where we're at. Now, the question is this. Why would we even do this? I mean, everything I've just said is so full of controversy and cuts across so much of what our culture holds at its core. Rights, perceived understand, all of it. And the answer makes no sense to the world. It only makes sense if you're a Christian. You love Jesus more than your life. You love Jesus more than your rights. You love Jesus more than your wants. You love Jesus more than your desires. And you love Jesus in general. And you find fulfillment and contentment in in him. Another wrote this though, and this is really important we catch this. If our views on sex and marriage uphold the biblical guardrails of male-female covenant union, but does not provide at the same time in a church, uh, church context lasting solutions to loneliness then it actually falls short of being a real Christian ethic. Community and real biblical friendship matters. In other words, as we choose to practice this willingly, if we're not working on our friendships, if married people and single people are not in deep relationship or singles with other singles, listen, if people are gonna follow, if we, the God's people, the holy people of God are gonna follow in this, then friendships matter even more. And in our culture, friendships are disappearing. But the only way to combat this is, is to have friendships. Loneliness cannot win or all this falls apart. 
Okay, let me end with this. Here's the things that I would love you to take away to wrestle with and talk to with a pastor or in community. But, but all this is important. Number one, who has the final say and what has the final say for us? Like this is a moment of worship, authority, and trust. Does scripture have more authority or do we? You got to wrestle that out this week. Second, who do you love more? <laughs> like who do you, who do you love more. You'll never give up a good thing unless you know there's something greater. Or you'll never change the good thing or, or move in a different direction unless you understand the greater thing who's Jesus. Here's another question. Where do I need to begin practicing this? Where do I need to begin to participate in this? Here's the next thing. Who, who do I need to talk this through with? Just like I shared a few weeks ago when we talked about confession, this needs to be worked, over, worked out over time. This isn't just like, well, the Bible says it, and this is it, so shut up and go do it. No, 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 whoa, whoa. See, Jesus didn't come with Adam and Eve. Time. <laughs> so this is going to be a real moment of conversation and real deep work. Just like I said again about the confession moment, when you sit with someone, you want to sit with the right person. You don't want to sit with someone who says, well, I know what the Bible says and it's just wrong and we know better. We live in 2020. You don't want that. <laughs> you don't want to sit with someone and you share sexual wants or desires and they go, oh, you're so disgusting. You're such a pervert. Why? I don't even want to talk. No, you don't want that. <laughs> we need to sit and talk and wrestle and, and give time with mature, godly people who aren't just going to put on a bumper sticker and react. But we do need to talk about this stuff because it matters. Uh, two book recommendations that I think might help in lots of different directions. I already mentioned the one, War of Loves by David Bennett. You can get it everywhere. And it's a great narrative. It's a great story, but also theologically really truthful. And then um, after I finished this uh, sermon, uh, I picked up and started reading um, another book called Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury. And I think also, I, I read his introduction and I was laughing because it was basically the sermon, but way more. <laughs> but I think um, for those who are single or single again or have friends who are single, this book could be really helpful. Or if you need to understand and help and love singles better and singles if you want to help married people understand like this could be a really good resource seven myths of singleness and war of loves I know there's lots of process I know uh, this is probably not one of the usual uh, sermons uh, that we've been doing lately but it's critical so I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer wherever you might be listening to me and let's just do this together uh, we want to acknowledge Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are God and your creator. And we acknowledge that you actually do have the final say on things. And so we now pray, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the spirit of truth, to lead us in all truth, to comfort us and help us to have honest, genuine conversation, to work this out well. I guard the whole community from uh, dangerous people, abusive people, like just may it be right. And would you lead us into this practice uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God and for our love of Jesus?
Yeah, we ask this in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. Thanks for listening today. I know for some of you this was difficult. Um, work it out. It's going to be okay. Uh, yeah, God is good. And he has good things for us. Uh, can't wait to see you next week as we gather again to talk about another spiritual practice. See you next week. Mm-hmm.